is a line from my original campaign ad when I was kind of questioning, do I have the ability to do this? I said, teachers are nation builders. Isn't that the job of Congress? Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace, all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. With me today is Democratic Congresswoman Johanna Hayes, freshman representative from Connecticut's 5th District, elected in 2018. She is the first African-American woman and the first African-American Democrat to represent Connecticut, my home state, by the way. In 2016, Congresswoman Hayes received the National Teacher of the Year Award, which was presented to her by President Barack Obama in the White House. Two years later, she was elected to Congress. Her story, it seems, may just be beginning. Welcome, Congresswoman Hayes. Hi, thanks so much for having me. No, it's our pleasure. I wanted to start with your visit to the White House when you won the Teacher <laughs> of the Year Award. Uh, speaking to you then, Obama talked about your accomplishments, but he referred to your teachers and how they had inspired you, seen the spark in you, and encouraged you forward. Can you talk a little bit about your teachers and your decision then to become a teacher? <laughs> uh, I see what you're doing here. You're trying to put me in a really good mood. <laughs> That's my plan. Yeah, that day and that visit just creates this really nostalgic feeling because it reignites this feeling of hope and the power of community. Literally, my whole life story has come full circle to this moment right now of me serving in Congress, because what the president talked about and what I have just made a focal point of every conversation that I've had is that literally the investments that my community made in me, you know, you're seeing the result of those investments. And it wasn't always my family because we had many challenges in my family. I've been very candid about my mom's struggle with addiction, about my grandmother raising my brother and I, about us growing up in public housing, but I don't look at those things as obstacles. They just are parts of this very vibrant tapestry that has created my life. And throughout all of those periods, people in the community, people at school, people in our neighborhood centers, in churches, really have made investments in me. I think of it as they made deposits, you know, and all of those deposits now have created the sum total of who I am. If you would have asked me when I was standing in the White House with the president accepting the Teacher of the Year Award, if I had any desire to run for public office, the answer would have been unequivocally no, because I was doing what I had always aspired to do. It was my life's work. I always wanted to be a teacher. I worked really hard to be a teacher. And I thought being honored at the height of my profession was as good as it got. But I recognize today that it is so critically important for me to be in this role and in this position, because what I'm trying to do as a legislator and what I think we all need to do is reset our communal morality and 
come back to this understanding that sometimes it takes for the entire community to make investments in people until they can stand on their own. And that really is the guiding force behind every decision I make, every piece of legislation that I draft, everything that I vote on. It is someone did this for me. You know, someone stood in intercession for me. And many of those people were teachers. And everyone always asks, who's your favorite teacher or who's the one teacher? It was never just one person. You know, it was the bus driver at the community college who made sure I got to class on time when I pulled into the parking lot late every day. Uh, it was, you know, my neighbors who babysat, all of these different people who played very different roles. And as an adult, I realized how critically important every one of those tiny deposits were. And I think that's who we are. That's what I'm striving to create. That's really interesting. So I was reading about how you came to run for Congress because, you know, it's not the normal thing to go from, okay, I was at the White House, now I should, you know, be in politics. And one of the things I read was that Senator Chris Murphy, who, by the way, has spoken here at the Center on National Security, sought you out. Is that correct? It is correct. So the seat that I currently serve in now, the previous representative decided that she would not seek reelection. So it was an open seat. And I got a call from him. Can we meet tomorrow? I mean, we had known each other casually. He was very supportive of my time as teacher of the year, but we had never had a conversation about politics or my role in politics or anything like this. So you knew him ahead of time. I knew him ahead of time, but this came completely out of the blue. And it was kind of floated as we think you'd be a really good person. You are known in the community. You do a lot of work in the community. And I think we need fresh faces and fresh perspectives. And I think you could mobilize a lot of people to get involved. And my answer at that meeting was unequivocally, absolutely not. And I got on a plane about, I think it was six days later, and I took my kids to California on a Habitat for Humanity build. And while we were there, it was just something about all of these kids who literally lived in public housing, they didn't own their own homes, who had raised the money to fly across the country to help a community that was devastated. I just felt like, you know, I've been telling these kids my entire career, when you have a moment to help someone else, it is your responsibility to do it. And now here I was almost afraid to step into this arena and not even try. And on the flight back home, I said to my husband, I think I'm going to do it. <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> uh, it, we've had a lot of similar conversations like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. In March of 2019, Rolling Stone did a cover article on the women who had been elected to the 116th Congress. And in the picture is Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and Representatives Elon Omar and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and you. And the issue was dedicated to women shaping the future. And it was a record 102 women entered Congress that year, a third of them freshman Congress persons. And I just wanted to have you reflect on that. Has there been a sense of, wow, we can really be game changers. This is getting a voice. Not that all women have the same voice, but a different sense of community, a different sense of impact, or is it too soon? D did that happen right away? Or is that an irrelevant point? No, it absolutely happened right away. And I think on so many levels, the American people can see that. I think if you look at the legislation that came out of this 116th Congress, it is clear, it is crystal clear that women were involved in the drafting of this legislation. This was about families and children and people. And 
I always explain it to people. Imagine Thanksgiving at your house when all of your extended family is there. Every perspective, every argument, every point, every counterpoint is brought up, discussed, debated in caucus. And what you see is the finished product of that legislation. So a perfect example is the Tax and Jobs Act that was passed a couple of years ago. I was like, yeah, but how does that affect me? So I think what you see out of this Congress is legislation that affects people at every level. You know, when we talk about the Dream and Promise Act, the Equality Act, the Violence Against Women's Act being reauthorized, all of those things are legislation that women demanded, that we said, you know, we need to make an investment in public education. Childcare, I just had a bill on the floor, a childcare is essential, $50 billion in childcare. That doesn't come from a Congress that is not a majority, minority, and women, you know? So those are the types of things that we are elevating and bringing into the national conversation. And I think that the country is better off for having us. Yeah. And in the Democratic National Convention uh, last week, you could see that emphasis on empathy over and over again. That really has become a dominant thread of the Democratic message this year. As it should be. I mean, because we're not just talking about policy differences. For all of my life, as long as I've been paying attention, we've had Republicans and Democrats, and they've differed on policy and how to get there. Somehow, in this last couple of years, we have made a left turn, and now we're trying to bring back civility and humanity and empathy. We can disagree on policy. We can think that this is not the best course of action for this country, but I think the message that is coming from the top down of what civil discourse looks like and what it's okay to engage in is not something that I'm comfortable with. And the idea that so many people would say, I wouldn't say this to my children or I wouldn't accept this from the soccer coach, but yet as a country, we can accept this in our legislative and governmental bodies, I think it's not okay. And it's going to take mothers and women to just drop the gauntlet on that one and say, you know, this is an absolute, this is something that we're not willing to do. It's interesting. You wrote um, an op-ed in June for the Hartford Current, and you touched on inequality when it comes to race and criminal justice. And now we've watched the Black Lives Matter movement take shape and persist. And I'm just wondering, do you think there's been some real structural institution? Uh, and legislative fixes to inequalities, whether it's in the prison system or in in the police treatment of individuals on the street and in communities. I mean, where do we stand in this story? Are we on a trajectory that really looks like things are going to change? I truly believe that we will see changes. Before I was in Congress, I was a history teacher. And I've seen these points in our history before. We've heard the president I'm sorry, the president. We've heard Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm getting awesome. ahead of myself. <laughs> uh, and, and even Kamala Harris talk about these inflection points in our history. And I think that's where we are. Because five years ago, even three years ago, during my campaign, people weren't ready to talk about these conversations surrounding racial inequalities, you know, economic disparities. People weren't willing to talk about the way women and Black women specifically are covered different in races and in elections and treated differently. And now there's almost this national awakening where people are, first of all, the fact that I see so many people engaging in the conversation. My district covers 41 towns from the most urban to the most rural communities. 
This is the larger Waterbury area, right? From Waterbury to Danbury? Waterbury to the New York border. So right. Waterbury, Danbury, New Britain are cities, but I also have Falls Village, Washington Depot, Cornwall. So very rural farming communities. Uh, I have wealthy suburban areas in the Farmington Valley. Mm -hmm. But I saw almost every one of these communities out having rallies and protesting and demanding justice. And I think that the fact that it's not just Blacks who are saying we have a problem here, that it's everybody saying, you know what, this is not okay. And no matter how we got here, I think we have a responsibility to get on a corrective course of action. I think you can't, as an elected official, you can't ignore that. So I think we've been given a charge. I hear people talking about these inequalities in a way that I've never heard before. My colleagues are asking questions of me which are very different when they're asking, how does this affect your family? And can you explain to me about your experiences? My husband is a police officer. I've been very vocal about just the struggle that we've had internally with some of the policing reforms and the outer conversations and how we merge those things together. But I definitely think that there's no way for everyone to put their head in the sand and say, we will do nothing. You know, we've seen this before. We saw, you know, with, Emmett Till, with Rosa Parks, with the civil rights movement, the freedom rides, all of these times where just these pivotal events just jumpstart these larger societal conversations. And I think this is our moment to do that. Let's talk a little bit about COVID because so many of the fractures that have appeared in our country since COVID have been explained as cracks that were in the system that we weren't paying attention to. I noticed you've sponsored and co-sponsored legislation for a number of things in response to COVID. So my question to you is, is there a way to prioritize what to address first, second, and third in response to COVID? Have we done that? Or is it really one of those things where we absolutely have to do everything all at the same time? How do you rationalize this to your, yourself and reason through that question? For me, again, this is deeply personal because of my personal life experiences. So there are lots of things like disparities in education, you know, yeah. some of our school buildings that are not adequate for ventilation or supplies or the digital divide or food security or access to health care. And while other people may not have been paying attention to those things, they are all a part of my lived experiences. And I saw it every day and I felt the impact of it and I still live it every day. So I have always been paying attention to these things. So when I think about what is happening now, I always kind of remind myself that these are opportunities for us to correct these things and they all have to be done. And I think this is part of the challenge we see being played out now in May when the House Democrats introduced the HEROES Act. We spent hours on calls every day. We're up to 50 caucus calls, which are anywhere from two to three hours. And people were saying, well, this is something else that affects my community. And this is another direct impact of COVID-19. And this is some things that we need to look at. So people talked about a democratic wish list, but no, these are all the different ways that people were impacted. So the idea that, oh, well, let's do this one and we can think about this one later. We've been doing that for too long. All of these things need to be done. I introduced racism as a public health crisis because we saw very early on that minority communities, specifically Black and Latino communities, were hit the hardest by COVID. 
and people were trying to figure out why. And it's quite simple, the lack of access to preventative healthcare, the mm -hmm. lack of consistent healthcare. If we start to do those things and people get healthy, then maybe those communities would not be as vulnerable in a pandemic. If we close the educational disparities and all of those gaps, then perhaps we would not have had this crisis of the digital divide and some schools being unable to go online and some schools being unable to reopen because they don't have proper ventilation or the windows don't open or the way that schools are funded makes the disparity gaps so wide that schools can never recover from any type of setback. I introduced legislation to to increase SNAP benefits during this crisis because food security right. has always been an issue. So these are not new issues. So the idea of if you correct one, then we can deal with the other things later. Even if we reopen schools, if kids are not fed, if their families are not healthy, then they will not learn. So there's an interconnectedness in all of this legislation. And we have the ability, we have the resources, I think, it just it's going to take the will to make these all priorities and say we care enough about just the average person we care enough about the little guy that we're going to put these things in place for the betterment of a brighter future for our entire country and i think people have felt a little bit disengaged and left behind because quite frankly some of our legislation and policy didn't speak to them in that way yeah, I mean, speaking of that and engagement, you know, we have an election coming up, as I know you know. For you, I'm really curious about the question about inspiring young people to go to the polls and getting the young voters to vote. And I'm curious if there's any sense that there is a momentum that young people will vote in a way they haven't voted before. I think it's going to take more than momentum. And people talk about this a lot. Most of my original campaign was fueled by young people because they were the only ones who supported me. In 2018, I did not have the nomination of the Democratic Party. I was not the favored candidate. I did not have a network. I did not have a fundraising network. So literally, my former students were the ones who came and helped me to build a campaign. And people often ask me, how did you get so many young people inspired or get them out to work? And my response was always the same. You give them a reason. We need to be speaking to them about the issues that they care about. I mean, we're coming off of a generation where people are just diehard Democrats and they always vote Democrat, or people are diehard Republicans and they always vote Republican. We have a generation who's a little bit more fluid than that. They vote on issues and the things that they care about. I can remember in the classroom when I would teach about civics, we would always talk about how Every elected official who was running went to nursing homes and talked to the elderly. And I would ask my students, why do you think that is? And they would say, because my grandma votes every election. You know, she gets dressed, she makes the day out of it. We have to drive her, we stop for coffee and breakfast. And I said, so yes, those are reliable votes. And I would tell young people, if you become a reliable voting block, then every elected official will know that they have to talk to you. They have to talk about the issues that are important to you and they have to deliver on those issues. So I think more than just motivating young people, we have to start talking about the things that they care about. I did a poll very early on because people said young people don't pay attention. They don't care about these things. The number one issue for most of them was the environment. There is a heightened sense of concern for being good stewards over our environment. Student loan debt was another issue. You know, they really 
have just a distaste for the fact that the federal government is turning a profit off of their student loan debt and they are set up for failure for many years to come as a result of it. Healthcare, a lot of the institutions that were part of the general conversation, things like social security and home ownership, we have to create a platform that is appealing to them and speaks to them and then obligate them to do their part to uplift that platform. And I know it's possible because I've seen them in action. I've seen young people work. They have the endurance and the tenacity. And if they believe in something, they will work for it. They just need leaders to kind of channel that energy and give them a blueprint for, you know, how to engage. We have to imagine a different type of engagement. I would have young people come in and they say, I don't want to knock on people's doors. I don't want to canvas. I don't want a phone bank but there's lots of other things I can do. You know, I want to create a song, create a video. I want to put it on social media. We have to welcome their ideas and hear them and, and make them a part of the conversation. Don't just have them as, you know, props for a photo op to say that we have the buy-in of a young, diverse community. Right. So it's the 21st century and maybe, you know, we need to listen to some of the 21st century language from um, <laughs> our younger folks. I, I think that actually makes some sense. Um, we're getting to the end of our time. We always end the podcast with talk about hope. What do you see as hopeful when you look forward to the future? So again, I think that has been the through line of my life. One of the reasons I was selected as the National Teacher of the Year is not just the work I did inside of the classroom, but I formed a club, which was called the Hope Club, which stood for helping out people everywhere. And our club was a community service club, which went from about 19 kids to over 200. And we engaged in all kinds of projects around our city and then throughout the country. And what I wanted to teach these kids who had been on the receiving end of aid their entire life was that you too can be the giver. And it worked. As a result of them being of service to others, their grades improved, their college acceptances improved, their investment in the community improved. So I've already seen it in action. I've seen it play out. And now I see so many people in this political world who have never been engaged in politics, who have literally just voted and thought it was enough, or some people who didn't vote, who are saying, teach me how to engage, or I want to be a part of the solution. And for me, that's where our hope lies, in not leaders taking the mantle and fixing everything, but in individuals together saying, you know what, I can't do everything, but I can do my small part. I don't get to not have hope. You know, my life, I have been the beneficiary of so much I used to call it undeserved grace, but I think it's exactly what it was supposed to be. And I think if everybody just thinks of, of the grace that has been invested in them and, and just turn that out in multiple ways in their community, that's who we are. You know, I wouldn't be here, but for the fact that someone believed in me, that many people believed in me. And, and I know that those people exist. They have been a part of my world and my life. I'm meeting new people like that every day. So it's going to take a lot to make me just give up this idea of hope in our future. It's really inspiring to think about the fact that teachers can become people who help teach the country how to take care of one another. I mean, it's like a natural progression that I hadn't really thought about as a natural progression. 
was a line from my original campaign ad when I was kind of questioning, do I have the ability to do this? I said, teachers are nation builders. Isn't that the job of Congress? And I think that as teachers, we send kids out to the idea of creating a better world, creating a better community. I'm going to give you the tools that you need. That was my life's work. And I look at Congress as now making sure that the legislation and the laws create a structure by which those tools will be useful. Um, do you miss teaching? I miss my students and I, I stay in touch with them. I miss my colleagues. I, I hope that I'm doing them justice and being their voice. I am in deep prayer for all of them as schools are reopening and many of them are struggling. But I do not think that this is the end of my journey. I believe I'll end up back in a classroom just because that's the way I'm wired and I miss it so much and I have so many new experiences to bring to kids. Right now, my new title is I am an educator serving in Congress, but I will drop the last part at some point and go back to the classroom. <laughs> that's really interesting. You've basically been able to knit together an understanding of youth, a responsibility for the next generation or next generations, and bringing the, the lessons that you've learned both as a teacher and as a person with her own narrative to try to help the country, the larger classroom of the country. So thank you so much for joining us today, Congresswoman Hayes, and I hope you come back and talk to us again. Thank you. I'd love that. You enjoy your day. We will. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interests online forum at centeronnationalsecurity.org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.